0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. What is the trajectory of human history? Well, let's consider two perspectives that come from poems of the 20th century. The first is from the Beatles, I've got to admit it's getting better, a little better all the time. Well, that's an optimistic perspective, right? The second perspective comes from William Butler Yeats. Yeats wrote after World War I, at a time when people thought they had survived the worst of history. Things could only get better going forward, right? And so they thought a golden age was coming. But Yeats saw things differently, so he wrote these words. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned." The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. What rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Yeats didn't think things were getting better. He thought things were about to spiral out of control. He expected the unmaking of the social order, the birth not of a savior, but a destroyer, which would lead to not a golden age, but unfathomable evil. Which perspective is correct? Are things getting a little better all the time, or are we descending into chaos? Well, last week in Genesis 4, we saw the beginning of human civilization, and we saw that to some extent, both perspectives are true. Certainly, as history has unfolded, there have been many improvements. Things have gotten a lot better. Today we have antibiotics and plumbing, electricity and air conditioning, Ancient people, even people 10 generations ago, had none of these. Undeniably, in many ways, there has been progress. Just like the first civilization had progress. We saw last week the founding of the first city, the beginning of arts and crafts and industries. But just because people progress scientifically and economically does not mean that we progress morally. Adam fell into sin. And his offspring fell into worse sin. Cain murdered his brother. And the the civilization Cain forged was marked by sexual immorality and the multiplication of violence. Same things we see in our society today. Yes, there is scientific and economic progress, but there is also tremendous moral degradation. Now, today we're gonna be in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 8. And today we're going to see where Adam's sin ultimately leads. And we're going to see four points today. First, humanity is corrupted by sin. Second, humanity is dominated by death. Third, humanity spirals into moral anarchy. And fourth, God intervenes in this world with judgment and grace. So let's start with our first point, which is that humanity is corrupted by sin. If you've got a Bible, look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. We read, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, this introductory statement begins the third section of Genesis. And the key word here is the word translated generations. In Hebrew, this is toledoth. And it basically means here's what happened next after whomever is named. So now we're going to find out what happened after Adam. And to tell us that, our author Moses is going to give us a genealogy, a record of the lineage of Adam. And he starts back at the beginning. Look at verse 1. He says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Moses reminds us of humanity's beginning and of several truths we looked at in the first sermons of this series. That God made humanity as his special creation. We did not arise from the animal kingdom. That God made humanity male and female, as men and women, defining gender by biological sex. That God named humanity, showing he is sovereign over us. That God blessed humanity. He gave us duties and enabled us to fulfill them. That God made us in his own image and likeness, with the ability to speak and engage in moral reasoning, to perform skilled and artistic labor. We were made to be God's deputy rulers in this world, reflecting Him to all other life. What a privilege! What an exalted position! Human life has great value because it reflects God. And when we think about God's creation of humanity and this wonderful position he gave us, and then when we consider the murders and the immorality of chapter 4 and in our own time, we see just how far things have fallen since creation. The dignity and nobility of man has been shattered. What caused this? Sin. Adam and Eve rebelled. Look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. We're never told how long Adam lived in the garden, or how old he was when Cain and Abel were born. But now Moses returns to what we saw at the end of chapter 4, the birth of Adam's third son, Seth. And the rest of this genealogy traces Adam's lineage through Seth. Now this is a contrast with what we saw last week. Because chapter 4 had a genealogy that traced Adam's lineage through Cain. There's lots of genealogies in this book. And what you'll find as you look at them is consistently the elect lineage, the lineage that proves to be godly, always is presented last in Genesis. And the ungodly lineages are presented first. So it is here. The ungodly lineage of Cain is in chapter 4. Seth's lineage, the elect line, is in chapter 5. We also know that Seth's lineage will prove to be generally godly because of the way it was introduced in chapter 4, verse 26. Look back there and it says, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The rise of Seth's lineage saw the emergence of people who prayed and worshipped God by name. It's a wonderful development in the midst of Cain's evil civilization. And yet, as Moses now tells us about Seth's lineage, he reminds us that these people who will ultimately prove to be godly are still the heirs of fallen Adam. That's why Moses says in verse 3, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness and image. Up to this point, humanity has been described as being made in God's image and likeness alone. But now humanity takes on another likeness, the likeness of Adam. And understand, this is Adam after his fall, because chapter 4 tells us all of Adam's children were born after he sinned. So humanity is going to change. Now don't misunderstand me, we are still made in God's image. Chapter 9 of this book, God says murder is wrong because he made man in his own image. The New Testament warns us against cursing people who have been made in the likeness of God, James 3. Friends, we are still the image bearers of God, but now there is a distortion, a marring of that image. Because we have taken on a second image, we now also reflect fallen Adam. And that means we image some truths about him too. Adam was a sinner when he fathered his children, and we, his descendants, are likewise sinners. And this is true from the very start of our lives. Psalm 51, verse 5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are not inherently good. We are not born as blank slates formed only by nature or nurture. No, we are sinners to the core. You know, my little boy Joshua is a sweet kid. I love him. But he loves being disobedient. And Sarah said, Hey, God calls disobedience sin. You shouldn't do it. You know how he responded? Wanna sin. He's being honest. He wants to sin. And so do we, friends, because by nature, from our conception, we are sinners. Moreover, Adam's sin caused him to spiritually die. When he took from the tree, his relationship with God was severed. He was expelled from God's presence. And we, his descendants, are likewise born spiritually dead. 1 John 3 describes our natural condition as death. Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead in trespasses and sins. We're all born, alienated, and disconnected from God, who is the source of all life and goodness. And friends, in ourselves left to our own devices we don't see this as a problem we don't naturally desire a relationship with god psalm 14 says the lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after god but they've all turned aside together they have been corrupt there is none who does good not even one instead we pursue evil not god Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so not only are we sinners by nature, but we become sinners by choice. We become slaves of sin. For Jesus says in John 8.34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Paul tells us what this looks like in Ephesians 2 that we follow the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Eve was dominated when she looked at the tree, and it appealed to her eyes and her senses and her pride. And we, her descendants, chase those same things. And we listen to the lies of the world system. And so we unwittingly join the rebellion of Satan, who deceived our first parents. Friends, we are corrupted. And if God did not intervene in our lives, there would be absolutely nothing we could do about this miserable state. Because Ephesians 2 says we can't be saved by our works. Isaiah explains it like this. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Because of sin... In our natural condition, we are corrupt and unclean. We don't desire or seek God. Our best works don't please Him. They're like disgusting, soiled rags. We are separated and distant from God, and our sins are destroying us now and will destroy us forever under God's judgment. That's the bad news, isn't it? Well, now it gets worse, because now we're going to look at this idea of judgment as we come to our second point which is that humanity is dominated by death. We've talked about spiritual death, but the consequences of Adam's sin went beyond that. In addition to spiritual death, humanity also fell under the judgment of physical death. And as we read on, we see that clearly. Genesis 5, beginning in verse 4. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Oh, that was verse 3. All right, now verse 4. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, in, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 850 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Now, we're going to talk about Enoch more in a few minutes, but jump down now to verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. What do we see here? Generation after generation of Seth's lineage of men who lived for centuries, who had many children, and what happened to them? They died. Isn't that the refrain? And he died, and he died, and he died. God put Adam and Eve in the garden where there was the tree of life. They could have lived forever had they eaten from it, but they forfeited it because of sin. God saw to it they would not live forever, because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That doesn't just mean spiritual death, it means physical death too. And that fate befalls all of Adam's descendants, not just in Cain's evil lineage, but in Seth's godly lineage too. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 14 says, Death reigned. Fallen Adam sired children, and we didn't just inherit his sin, we inherited his judgment, his spiritual death, and his physical mortality. And then we just confirm that and earn it for ourselves as we choose to become sinners. And so, friends, our bodies will die. They will be separated from our souls. But more than that, the penalty for sin transcends physical and spiritual death. Because Paul says in Romans "One trespass led to condemnation for all men. The condemnation of eternal death. Again, Ephesians 2, Paul says, Like the rest of mankind, we are children of wrath. A wrath described in 2 Thessalonians 1 as the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. The worst fate imaginable. Friends, that's what we deserve. Because we are the ruined descendants of sinful Adam and we ruin ourselves further by being sinners through our choices. And so God's righteous sentence of death, physical, spiritual, and eternal, stands over all of us. And in ourselves, we are hopeless and helpless against this fate. Again, this is a bleak picture, right? Humanity is corrupted by sin and dominated by death. But wait, it still gets worse because now we come to our third point as humanity spirals into moral anarchy. Look down now at chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land. Okay, so now at least 10 generations have come. And remember, at that time, people are living for centuries. The birth rate is much larger than the death rate. So there is a population explosion. The earth is filling up, which is what God intended. Because in chapter 1, he said, fill the earth, right? But now as people fill the earth, they're not doing so as image bearers, faithfully modeling God before the world. No, as people fill the earth, what is abounding is evil. Genesis 6.11 says, The earth, at this time, was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In chapter 4, we saw the beginning of sexual immorality. And the beginning of violence. Now it's pervasive through every level of society. That's what sin does. It begets more sin. And moral anarchy reigns. And now we're going to see just how disordered things are. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is maybe the strangest and most controversial passage in the whole Bible. It has produced all manner of conjecture and speculation for millennia. So this is a tough section, but we, we need to try to do our best to understand it. And to guide this discussion, we're going to consider four questions. Question number one, what is the sin described here? That is, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men that marry and reproduce? Many views have been proposed. I'm just going to talk about the three which are most popular. View number one is that the sons of God are the godly descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men are the ungodly descendants of Cain. Now, this view has one big advantage, which it, it is very consistent with the context, because Genesis three fifteen said humanity would divide it into two groups, one group allegiant to God and one that followed Satan, and we've seen in chapters four and five that has happened. There is the lineage of Cain and the lineage of Seth. Now, if this interpretation is correct, then the sin here is the formation of religiously mixed marriages which is a huge problem in Israel's history and is something forbidden even in the New Testament. Single people, you need to only marry believers. Okay, Believers should not be marrying unbelievers. And that's what view number one is about, religiously mixed marriage. Now, view number two here is that the sons of God are kings because occasionally the term sons of God in the Old Testament refers to kings. Now, if this is correct, the sin here is polygamy. Evil kings use their power to marry hordes of women. They are recreating the sin of Lamech from chapter 4. That's view number 2. Now, view number 3 is that the sons of God are angels because the term sons of God in the Old Testament most commonly refers to angels. And these angels now follow the sinful pattern of Eve from chapter 3. They see the women. They determine they are beautiful which in Hebrew is the feminine form of the word tov. They pronounce for themselves what is good, and they take it, even though it's forbidden. Now, if this view is correct, the sin is interspecies marriage, which then produces abominable angel-human hybrids. Which of these views is correct? Well, all three of them are possible, so we can't be too dogmatic here. But my own sense is that the angelic view is probably correct. And I hold this view for four reasons. First, it is most consistent with the way the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament. Second, it seems to be the oldest interpretation. Uh, We know that people held this view before the birth of Jesus, but we don't know that about the other two views. The polygamy view is not attested in the literature until the second century AD, and the view that it's about religiously mixed marriages is not attested before the fourth century AD. So the angelic view's earliest and therefore it's most likely to be correct. Third, the angelic view makes the best sense of verse four, describing the remarkable offspring produced by these sinful marriages. If the marriages are just between people, it's hard to see why the offspring are described in these sort of heroic and remarkable terms. The angelic view would seem to explain that the best. And fourth and most importantly, The angelic view seems to be taught by the New Testament. Jude verse 6 says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire. The Greek there says strange flesh. Now what Jude is describing here is some angelic sin and he doesn't give a lot of details but he says that it's similar to and likewise the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah who engaged in unnatural sexual acts and desires. Now, this section of Jude is all about Jude quoting biblical examples, so that tells us Jude thinks that this sin of angelic sexual misconduct is found somewhere in the Bible, and the only place that would be is here in Genesis 6. You find similar references in 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2. which talk about spiritual beings imprisoned during the time of Noah because of sin. It also seems to point to this incident. So I think the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are humans. Now some will object to this because Jesus says in Matthew 22, in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And they'll say, "Well, see that that means angels can't marry or reproduce." But Matthew 22:30 doesn't say anything about reproduction, and it seems here that we're, we have an insight into God's will for the holy angels that they should not be married. But is it not possible that disobedient, sinful angels might rebel against this command? I don't think Jesus' words preclude that possibility. Now, how did angels procreate? I don't know. Uh, We've already seen in this book, fallen angels could possess creatures like the serpent. Maybe demons possessed men who then married and fathered children. Maybe the angels took on bodily form. We'll see that they can do that in chapter 18 of this book. Maybe in that form they married and fathered children. Maybe angels can marry and reproduce in a spiritual form. I don't know. But from the available options, I think the angelic interpretation is probably correct. Now question two is, who are the Nephilim? Nephilim is a Hebrew word that means the fallen ones. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated this word gigantes, or giants. And That's why many English versions say giants. Now, that translation was made because of Numbers 13. In Numbers 13, the Israelites are about to enter the Promised Land, and they send in spies to scout the land. And two of the spies come back and say, hey, God's with us, we can conquer it. But ten of the spies come back and say, those guys are way too tough, we can't do it. And as part of their false and unbelieving report, they say in Numbers 13.33, we saw the Nephilim and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them. So they're saying the Nephilim are giants and that they encountered them. Now, it's important to remember the people in Numbers 13 who say this were unbelieving liars that God condemned. So I don't think we should believe they actually saw the Nephilim, especially since the Nephilim seemed like they would have all had to perish in the flood. So I'm not sure whether we should trust their claim that the Nephilim were giants either. Certainly the Bible tells us there were gigantically proportioned people in the ancient world. Maybe that's what this is talking about. But the word here is fallen, and so I think more likely this term is describing the fallen angels who married human women or their hybrid offspring. In short, we can't know for sure. The Nephilim just seem to have been beings who lived on the earth until the time of the flood. right, question three. Who are the offspring here? Well, they're called mighty men, which in the Old Testament later means powerful warriors, and they're called men of renown, so that is to say they were known and celebrated. They would seem to be like the heroic figures of legend we find around the world, you know, like Hercules-type people, demigods with superhuman strength. Now, Moses here seems to indicate that such Powerful, amazing figures did exist in the distant past. But as in earlier chapters, here again he is critiquing the myths of the pagan nations. Because while the pagans would celebrate such legendary heroes, Moses here shows us, in fact, these men are not a good thing. They were the abominable byproducts of this wicked interspecies marriage that God opposed. What the pagans think is good is actually evil. Now, this brings us to our last question, which is, what does verse 3 mean? God is appalled by this disgusting sin, and He judges humanity. They might say, well, wait a minute. The sin was done by angels. Why are people judged? Well, we've got to remember two things. The angels were judged that did this. We just read in Jude they were bound in eternal chains waiting condemnation. But also, we should not assume that humans were totally innocent in what happened here. There is no sense in this chapter that these women were kidnapped or forced against their will to bear hybrid offspring. The language here speaks of marriage. And in the ancient world, marriages were contracted between the groom and the father of the bride. So I don't think the angels are the only guilty party here. People consented to it too. So God judged them. But what does it mean that my spirit shall not abide in man forever? For he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Here again we find more questions too. First question is what does this verb abide mean? It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible so we don't really know what it means. Now when we find unique Hebrew verbs like this we can try to figure out what they mean by looking at related Hebrew words or by looking at words that have the same form in related languages from the ancient Near East. And when we do that, we find there is a very similar verb in the Akkadian language that means to protect. And that's what I think is being said here. God's spirit is not going to protect humanity anymore. That is, up until this point, God's spirit has been restraining evil. Things are bad, but they're not as bad as they could be. God has been protecting people from the full extent of their sin and judgment. Now that restraint will end. Now, as Romans 1 says, God will give them over to their sin. Find a similar idea in 2 Thessalonians 2, where God says at the end of history, the restrainer will be removed and the Antichrist will emerge. I think something similar is happening here in Genesis 6. Now, the second question about this verse is, what does it mean his day shall be 120 years? Some interpreters take this to mean that God is now going to decrease human lifespans to 120 years. Now, hey, to us today, 120 years sounds pretty good, right? Um, But it's much shorter than any lifespan in chapter 5. That's possible. But throughout the rest of Genesis, while we do see lifespans decreasing, they stay higher than 120 years. So I don't think that's the right interpretation. More likely is that the 120 years here represent the amount of time... God is going to grant humanity before he executes judgment upon them for their moral anarchy. So because humans are flesh, because we are bent towards evil, God says there's a timer on civilization and it's running and it ends in 120 years. Now look, I know those verses were a lot, right? I just dropped a lot on you. In summary, what they teach us is how corrupt humanity has become at this point in history. Violence abounds, and people have become so immoral they are violating the natural order by procreating with angelic beings. And I think this pessimistic view is confirmed as we now see what God thinks about this in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Today, we hear people say things like, Why do bad things happen to good people? Or they're quick to say, I'm a good person. Biblically, none of us are good people. Sin started in the garden. Where did it lead? To the ruin of humanity. This is what theologians call total depravity. Now, that does not mean, total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. We aren't. Because during this period of history, God is again restraining evil. None of us are as bad as we could be. But we are totally depraved in that sin has corrupted every part of us. Our understanding is corrupt. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Unsaved people can't understand spiritual truth. Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Our minds are corrupted. Our hearts are corrupted. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jesus in Matthew 15 says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Our hearts are defiled, and they defile us. And our will is corrupted. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Sin has thoroughly corrupted us. Now, many people today, including many in the American church, resist this truth and have a more optimistic view about human nature. Oh, we're only partly corrupt, or maybe we're not corrupt at all. We can choose for God of our own volition. But friend, it's hard to be optimistic about human nature when God says every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or Ecclesiastes 9.3 says the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. Naturally, we are thoroughly defiled and incapable of making any move towards God or accomplishing any good work. Instead, we're dominated by the works of the flesh. Galatians 5 says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. That Greek word speaks of drug use enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That was the world in ancient times. That's the world today. That's who we are apart from Christ. I've got to ask, is that who we are today? Are we here now consumed by sexual impurity, by hating other people? Do we like to sow discord and watch the world burn? Do we like to play politics at work or at church? Do we relish opportunities to express our unrestrained anger or lust? Do we seek an escape by turning to substances like alcohol and drugs? Friends, these sins threaten to destroy us and those near us. And as we indulge in them, they pull us into a spiral of anarchy like we see here. Be warned, friends, because of such things, the wrath of God is coming on the world. God's patience has a limit. God gave them 120 years. He gives us a lot less time. What should we do with our sin? Or maybe you say, well, hey, what can I do? You've just told me I'm so corrupt. I'm spiritually dead. I can't improve myself. What can I do? Well, this brings us to our last point, in which we're going to see there's some really bad news and some really good news. God intervenes in this world with judgment and with grace. As God sees how bad things are, look at verse 6, and the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart, and so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, what's it mean that God has regret? Well, Moses, who wrote these words, would later write Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Indeed, Malachi 3, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't change, and yet this text says he felt regret and sorrow. But God's regret and sorrow are different than ours. We feel regret as we go through life and learn and say, oh, I I should have made a different decision. God is eternal and omniscient. He doesn't learn. So it's not like God is watching this saying, oh, I didn't know they were going to figure this out. No, He knew things would turn out like this when He created. And yet, as God now intervenes in history to bring about judgment on this evil, He is righteously furious about this sin, and He is tremendously sad. God isn't joyous when He brings judgment. He is sorrowful about bringing catastrophe on His creation. But He is just, and sin must be condemned. Now, here he says he's going to blot out life, and that verb means to erase by washing, and that's what's going to happen. A worldwide flood is going to destroy all of life, a judgment that foreshadows the end of history. because 2 Peter 3 says, through water, by the word of God, the world that existed then was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The wrath of God came once. It is coming again. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, and all who are not in him will face the exacting justice of a holy God who will avenge every wicked thought and deed. Judgment is coming, which is terrible news. But God's not only angry and avenging, he is also loving and gracious and merciful. And even in this passage, we see that. Because look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first time we find favor or grace in the Bible. Grace is receiving God's kindness when we don't deserve it. And as we've seen today, none of us deserve God's kindness, including Noah. Now, next week, we're going to see Noah is called a righteous man. But don't make the mistake of thinking that Noah's righteousness earned God's favor. Because as chapter 5 has told us, even the godly are still ruined sinners. We are all the heirs of fallen Adam. And Noah was no different. He was a sinner by nature. We're going to see in chapter 9, he's also a sinner by choice. He deserved God's judgment. But God gave him something other than judgment. God revealed himself to Noah. That's grace. When all the world stumbles about in darkness, learning about God is a great kindness. God spoke to Noah. That's grace. Having access to God's word is a great kindness. God warned Noah. That's grace. Hearing the truth about sin and judgment is a great kindness. And God saved Noah. That's grace. Being delivered for the judgment that he deserved is a great kindness. See, God took the initiative. God drew Noah to himself. God did what no one on earth could do. God bridged the gap we cannot bridge. He overcame the power of sin and death to establish a relationship with a person. That's a tremendous kindness. See, friends, God is a loving Savior, abundant in kindness and mercy. And what God did for Noah, he did for many other people too. We've said the lineage of Seth was generally godly. It's not because of their ancestry. They're descendants of Adam as well. They are his, the heirs of his fallenness. They weren't godly because of some innate righteousness or good works. Because the natural man cannot earn God's favor. Friend, anytime you see human godliness, understand that as a response to something God did first. God extended grace to someone undeserving. See another example of that back in chapter 5. In the midst of reading about all these men who died, look at verse 22 of chapter 5. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Just like the other guys we saw in chapter 5, Enoch lived for centuries. He fathered some children. But unlike everybody else in chapter 5, it doesn't say, and he died. It says God took him. Now, when we say that, we mean, and he died. But that's not what Moses meant. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Enoch is the seventh generation of Adam through Seth. And this is a contrast to the seventh generation of Adam through Cain. Because in chapter 4, that was a guy called Lamech. And he was the father of sexual immorality. He was a man of violence. But Enoch here could not be more different. God drew near to Enoch, and Enoch responded with faith. He trusted God. He believed God's word, and he walked with God. Not like Adam did, not face to face. That privilege was lost. But Enoch maintained a close personal relationship with the Almighty. He sought to know God, and loved God, and obeyed God. Not as a duty, but because it was a joy to him. And that kind of faith pleases God. That's the right response to God's grace. And so God bestowed on Enoch the rarest of all honors, an honor shared only with the prophet Elijah. Enoch was taken out of this world without dying. Now that's amazing. Especially when you think about chapter 5, how we see death reigned over every one of those people. But Enoch's story reminds us that God reigns over death and that God is able to deliver his people from the power of death. But Enoch is not the only person in chapter 5 whose faith is described for us. Because we also read about Enoch's grandson, Lamech. This is not the same Lamech as the guy in chapter 4. This is a righteous man who received God's grace through faith. He knew God's word, and more importantly, he believed it. He knew that God had judged Adam's sin and cursed the ground so that people would have to live their lives toiling away, doing hardship. Lamech knew that, but he also knew God's promise of hope. Genesis 3.15, saying, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. Lamech understood that not only did that mean that humanity would divide into two groups, one following God and one following Satan. He understood that that predicted that one person would come, the ultimate offspring of the woman who would stomp on the serpent's head, who would undo the fall, who would reverse the curse, who would solve the problem of sin. And we know Lamech understood that because we read his words beginning in verse 28 of this chapter. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Lamech fathered Noah. And as he looked at his son, he spoke words of hope, hoping that Noah, whose name means rest, would be this promised one who would give mankind rest rest from the judgment of hard labor, rest from the curse, rest from sin. Now Lamech was wrong. Noah was not ultimately this figure who would win victory over Satan, sin, and death. But Lamech was right to hope for his coming. He was right to believe God's word. And millennia later, in the fullness of time, at long last the promised Messiah came a descendant of Seth, a descendant of Enoch, a descendant of this Lamech, a descendant of Noah, Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who did not inherit the fallenness of Adam because of his virgin birth, who was the untainted image-bearer of God. For Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus lived a life of sinless perfection. 1 John 3 says, In him there is no sin, he lived the life that we don't. And yet Jesus died. Not for his own sin. He had none. But First Peter 2 says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus died for our sins. He bore the penalty we should have borne solving the problem of eternal death. He died to bring us into a relationship with God, ending the problem of spiritual death. And Jesus rose from the dead, showing that in him is victory even over physical death. In Jesus is hope for the hopeless. In Jesus is help for the helpless. And God promises that everyone who repents and believes in Jesus will be saved Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you turn away from your old life of sin and turn to Jesus as Lord, as God in the flesh, as the one who has the right to tell us how to live, fully entrusting ourselves to Him because He died for us and He rose from the dead, friends, we will be saved. Friend, I, I plead with you, today believe in Jesus. If you've been paying attention to this sermon, maybe now you're going to say, well, wait a minute. If I'm dead in my sins, I can't seek God. If my will is corrupt, how can I repent and believe? It's a great question. But friends, what sinful man cannot do, God can. We can't initiate a relationship with God. We will never, left to our own devices, choose for God. But God chooses us. It's God who chooses. It's God who initiates. It's God who draws. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, How do you know today if the Father's drawing you? Today, do you know you're a sinner? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you know you're far from God? Do you want a relationship with God? Do you know you deserve death and hell? Do you believe that salvation is possible through Jesus? Friends, if If those things make sense to you, that is because the Spirit of God is opening your mind to the truth. And if that's so today, I beg you, do not let today go by without casting yourself on the mercy of Jesus. Psalm 95 says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 2 Corinthians 6 says, now is the day of salvation. Because you might not hear God's word tomorrow. You might not be given another opportunity. Hebrews 12 talks about Esau who sold his birthright and then afterwards had no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You don't know whether today's your last chance, friend. If you have never come to Christ, if you sense God is calling you, respond without delay in repentant faith, because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But today, friend, if you have laid hold of life in Christ, I want to ask you, are you messing around with sin? Have you lied to yourself and told yourself it's safe to harbor hate in your heart, to relish lust, to chase what looks good and what feels good, what appeals to your pride, to speak envious or divisive words, to listen to the world's lies and approve of what it tells you you should approve of, even when the Scripture says it's wrong? Do you do these things, believing the serpent's lie, that you will not surely die? Do you think that sin is safe, despite all the scripture says? Friend, today I want to say God is calling you to. Today we've learned the truth about God, His justice and His mercy. We've heard His word and His warning that the wages of sin is death. Will you believe Him? Will you turn from your sin? Whatever is inhibiting your walk with God, turn from it. Whatever is more attractive to you than God, money or position or illicit sex or power or whatever, friend, it isn't worth it. It will destroy you if you don't turn from it because sin kills and whatever false pleasures it offers pale in comparison to the simplicity and the beauty and the goodness of walking with the Lord, of cultivating that relationship you were created for, the relationship Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. Walking with God like Enoch did. Hearing his word as Noah did. We have it in the scripture today. Calling upon him in prayer as Seth's descendants did. Grounding your hope on his promises as Lamech in chapter five did. Believer, devote yourself to what is best in life. Read God's word and pray and walk with him. So today we've seen some really bad news. Sin corrupts us, death dominates us, Things spiral out of control and judgment is coming. But God, who is rich in mercy, graciously offers salvation in Jesus alone. And so as Paul said in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved.